In my place condemned he stood, the biblical pattern of the atonement. This is part two. And this morning, Jesus came because God loved us. But why did he have to die? Jesus came because God loved us, but why did he have to die? The text is John chapter 3, 16 to 19, and then verse 36. I hope you have your Bible in one form or another. Open it up, start it up, however you do it. <clears throat> John 3, 16 to 19, and then verse 36. What an important topic, the atonement. I don't suppose there are better known words from the Bible than the first verse of our text. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes, now saved is not defined there, it just says the world might be saved. And it's left undefined right there. In order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. So... We were going to be saved in 16, and now we're starting to see, oh, saved from, from what? Our insecurities, our loneliness? No, no. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, so now we know, we know what that word means because he uses a synonym for it right there. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, obey out of faith, obey out of love. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And these words that we have to figure out because they're there, the wrath of God remains. It's not comes, it's remains on him. Let's pray. Whatever else we don't get right, we have to get this right. This is the God so loved the world stuff. This is the being saved stuff. This is eternal life stuff. Your word is clear. Give us hearts and minds to embrace it understand it, and then embrace it. Because we don't always like everything your word says. That doesn't make it untrue. It just means we have to reorganize our affections. And so speak to us, guide and direct us, keep us from error. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's where I want to start. The most loving person who ever walked the face of the earth spoke the most of any New Testament writer 
the most loving person who ever walked the face of the earth, spoke the most about Father God's wrath against sin and his eternal judgment of sinners. That's Jesus. He, he, linked, he linked his coming to earth and his death on the cross. Jesus linked those things with the urgency of dealing with divine justice and God's wrath because apparently that rested on all people outside of Christ. That's how Jesus assessed the reason for his coming into this world and dying on a cross. That's what Jesus said about it, his own death, the meaning of it. I want to look, we'll be in this for, I don't mean to depress you, we'll be in this for at least 10 weeks. There are lots of questions that I'm not answering this morning. Whole sermons will be given to some controversial topics. So I'm just, I'm just introducing some things. Here are some of the essential components, as I see it, of the meaning of the cross in the mind of our Lord. That's what I'm talking about today. Here's what I think Jesus said about the cross. One. He said individuals perish and are condemned for their unbelief in the saving work of Christ. That collection of verses, technically there are two speakers in our opening text. First we hear from Jesus, and then in that 36th verse we hear from the Apostle John. But the message is exactly the same. First Jesus, he says he must die because without his death, he said people would perish. That's right there in verse 16. We all know it. Without his death on the cross, people would perish, 316. So to save them from this perishing, well, that's why the Father gave the Son. It has to do with keeping people from perishing. And here's the thing. We know, think it through, we know that perishing doesn't mean physically dying because even people who believe in Jesus physically die. So it can't be talking about that. Perishing means something more than death. Perishing means facing God's wrath after you die. Perishing is something that is much, much worse and more permanent than physical death. Perishing, according to Jesus, it comes from Sinful people facing the just, holy wrath of God without submitting to his atoning love, specifically in the gift that he gave, Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. We know this to be the case because of something else Jesus said. Again, Jesus is still the speaker here. He said, verse 18, he said, sinners stand condemned right now. That's what he said. He said, sinners are condemned already. That's the word he uses. So that means right now, unbelievers, right now people have a, a, a deadly problem. It's worse than cancer. It's worse than COVID. It's worse than poverty. It's worse than crime. It's worse than war. It's worse than pollution. People, Jesus said, they stand condemned. Notice, not just weak or lonely or struggling or sick or overwhelmed or depressed or less inwardly ideal or less at peace. No, 
condemned. That's the word, like it, hate it. That's the word Jesus uses. People who aren't believers right at this moment, over at the mall, at the gas station, in churches, right now they're condemned. So that means right now, while they eat, while they drink, while they work, while they read, play golf, check the markets, give blood to the Red Cross, give money to charities, cure diseases, get involved in various religious activities, raise their children. Unless they're believers in Christ, they are under the just and holy wrath of an absolutely pure creator. We need to pause and settle something in our minds. Everything I just said, you can reject it, but you can't deny the text says it. Unless Jesus is a liar, it doesn't matter how nice we think all these people are or how sincere they may be, they all stand condemned. They all stand guilty. One other thing. We know for sure that Jesus doesn't just mean sinners stand condemned by their own conscience. It's not feelings of guilt or feelings of condemnation that Jesus is talking about here. Because there are lots of people who feel no condemnation whatsoever while they don't even acknowledge God exists, but they don't feel condemned about it. No, just, just do the honest work with the words of the text. Jesus and John both are talking about the just condemnation of God that will eventually lead to their perishing, 316, in the face of holy judgment, 36. That's made perfectly clear by the way the condemnation from God is because of their refusal. See, it's because of their refusal, 18, to believe in the name of the only Son of God. So nothing else they do can make up for that refusal. That's why they're condemned. God loves them. God provides a way of escape, a way of redemption, a way of salvation at great cost. They refuse it. So there, there is, there's nowhere else to turn. Condemned. Two. Point number two. The reason... I've mentioned it, now I want to focus on it. The reason for this condemnation and this perishing, both those words are right in the text, is the wrath of God. So now, having looked at the words of Jesus, let's look at the words of John. The divinely inspired Apostle John, they sum up what we've just been looking at before in even more striking words. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So, so this isn't everybody. Eternal life. It's, it's these people. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Okay, that we might expect. I open a gate, you go through it, you don't go through it. But, but it's the reason that John wants us to notice. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It remains on him. 
So Jesus said people would perish. That's what Jesus said for not believing in his saving work. Now, John tells us even more directly the, the cause of their perishing. Why do they perish? Well, the cause of their perishing isn't their cursing or their theft or their murder or their abuse of their neighbor or their destruction of the environment. And the cause isn't the devil. The inward cause of their perishing, the text says, is their unbelief. So their unbelief is what triggers the problem, but it's not the whole explanation. The ultimate cause, the external cause of their perishing is there. It's the wrath of God. The wrath of God against their unbelief. John says, apart from something Jesus, God the Son, accomplished on the cross, everyone is under the just, righteous wrath of God. So you follow John's logic. Only Jesus removes the wrath of God. That's made clear. That's made clear by the way John says that apart from believing in Jesus and obeying Jesus, the wrath of God remains, 36, on the unbeliever. So in other words, this is vitally important, the wrath of God is where the condemnation and the perishing comes from, and only Jesus and his death on the cross bring deliverance from that. Point number three. Now this is where we're just going to start today. We need to analyze the reason or the reasons for a fairly significant shift away from substitutionary atonement theology. Why? Why? What I've just been talking about. Why is this message losing traction among progressive evangelicals? What exactly is it that makes people like, like Bas Baptist pastor Stephen Chalk say, quote, the fact is the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father, punishing his sons for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and refuse to pay evil with evil. There. It's pretty strong. Some people find it convincing. I'm going to look at Chalk's second objection that the atonement makes a mockery of Jesus' teaching to love our enemies. I'm going to look at that in future weeks. So I'm not ignoring it. I just, I'm not doing it right now. But if we study these words carefully, we, we start to see what's so offensive in the gospel of substitutionary atonement. I think there are essentially two elements 
to the atoning death of Christ in the New Testament, two elements that just collide with our culture's current, even religious mindset. Here are the two reasons, I think. So again, remember, we're just starting to open the can, okay? We're, we're not unpacking everything this morning. A, two reasons why I think this is hard for our culture to digest. The first is that we're currently under God's wrath because of our unbelief. That's, that's, the, that's the first thing that smacks us as difficult. In Chalk's own words, we find the idea of God's wrath against sinners to be, listen, quote, in total contradiction to the statement that God is love. That's, I mean, I, I'm not browbeating anybody. I just want you to know when you read, authors tend to form clusters around different topics. But those, those words from Chalk, they're just the standard. They're the standard position of, of people like Bruxy Cavey, Greg Boyd, Brian Zahn, Brian McLaren, Peter Enns, Sarah B.C., and formerly Rachel Held Evans. The reasoning of all these writers, it's not complex. People aren't going to feel drawn to a doctrine of wrath. I mean, that's just the basic summary of it. So it is argued we should, we should delete this from our presentation of the gospel to make, to make it acceptable and palatable and desirable to the modern unreached mind. I'm just using this as a for instance. These words from Sarah Bisi, they line up perfectly with all the other, this entire group of writers. They all have the same view of God's wrath against sin rather than against sinners. Quote, God wants us to be truly human, the way Jesus walked for and with us. Even the wrath of God isn't something to fear, but something to welcome. It's wrath that's coming against the very things that bring us destruction. It's wrath against the things that mess up my life. It's not wrath against me. Well, boy, there's a nicer ring to those words. By far. No one likes to think he or she is that bad. If God is loving, we shouldn't need to be rescued from his wrath. I mean, people want to hear about a God who affirms us, who suffers with us, to be sure, and above all, who welcomes all of us just as we are. I mean, we don't like being around people who are angry with us, do we? So we sure don't want to come to a God who just sort of self-proclaims, John 3.36, that his wrath remains. It's not very welcoming. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But God's, the wrath of God remains on, on, see, this is problematic. It remains on him. Note to self, the wrath isn't remaining on the sin. It remains on, remains on the him, the her, the unbeliever. It's, it's, I didn't write this. I'm personally 
more and more convinced. These people simply misunderstand, probably unintentionally, or somehow don't proclaim the nature of God's wrath and how different it is from ours. We have only one way to consider wrath as it gets expressed. Only one way. I, I, I can look at how I feel when I explode in anger. I can look at that. Or I can look at other people when they explode with anger at me. And I don't like either picture. And I have no other way of talking about wrath. Because the only wrath I can talk about is human wrath, one way or the other, given or received. Let me suggest a change in image when we're talking about God. I think this is really important, church. I mean, I hope most of the things I say from behind this pulpit are important. Some things like hit me is really important. Let me suggest to you that God's wrath is not an emotional reaction. The Bible writes about God's wrath because it's written for human beings in, in ways that we can picture it and understand it. I get that. God's innate wrath against all that is unholy is the same as heat and light getting expressed by the sun. The heat from the sun isn't a choice of the sun. It's simply what the sun is and can't possibly be otherwise. It's the same with God's just wrath against all sin. It isn't a reaction that can be turned on and off. Unlike my wrath, God's wrath isn't a choice. It's his being. In the same way that the sun gives light and heat and can't do otherwise, simply because it's the sun, God's wrath consumes sin and iniquity because he's absolutely holy in his being and can't be otherwise. So his wrath against someone is, I'm just going to, I am really ticked off with him. No, see, that's the way my anger works. It's not the way God's anger works. It's a different wrath entirely. Unlike our wrath, God's is not an emotional reaction. God's wrath isn't what God does. God's wrath is what he is. Being against God's wrath is exactly the same as being against the sun's heat. But make no mistake. There's nothing in what I just said that makes God's wrath less severe any more than the sun's heat isn't still intense. But his wrath isn't an outburst. It isn't beyond what fits in with his loving, holy character. It's all a part of who God is. You don't get to remake him. Now let's continue. Consider deeply the New Testament teaching that we might not be quite as beautiful inside as we're often told. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. He writes to Christians, but he's talking to them about 
when they weren't. Okay, that's what this text is about. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're, here's what I want to look at, and we're by nature children of wrath. And then he adds, like the rest of mankind, I want to talk about those three highlighted areas. When he says, like the rest of mankind, he's talking to Christians, that's up here. And he says that we were all un, uh, walking in sin, and we were all by nature children of wrath. And then he says, like the rest of mankind. And the reason he does that is because I can think of some people that are really bad and I don't put myself in their class. Okay? I'm not killing innocent people. I'm not making war. Uh, I, don't, I don't rape and pillage. I don't abuse children. I'm, I, I don't, I'm not addicted to internet porn. See, see I'm not like those people. And what I mean when I say that is I've never done those things, but I am like those people. And I have a newsflash for you. So are you. So are you. That's what this phrase is in there for. Children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. We all have this problem. We all have this problem. It's by, it's in our nature. Not just some of us, all of us. And what, we're children of wrath. The important phrase is that last one. We are all, just like the rest of mankind, by nature, children of wrath. That, that to me, packs quite a punch. Only divine revelation is going to confront us in this way. This means I didn't become an object of wrath because I told the lie, and then God's wrath came. It wasn't that I committed theft and then became a person under God's wrath. No, Paul says it's, vice versa. I was born. I came into this world. I drew breath. The psalmist says exactly the same thing. He said, we were all conceived in, what's the word? Iniquity. Iniquity. So, so it's not like I was neutral, did something bad, and now I received God's wrath. It's, I did the bad thing because that's what was in my nature. It still is. I wrestle with that. I fight with that. God helps me by his grace. The quote earlier that I read about God's wrath just being against the sins that hurt us rather than against us all, it breaks down just with the sheer weight of biblical data. We, we were born in sin before we, there were any actions of sin to attract divine displeasure. By nature, Paul says, by nature. So I said there are two things that, that make it difficult for our culture to accept. The first is this idea that, that we're under God's wrath. But there's a second part that, that I think is even worse. 
more affecting to us. The second part of the atonement, B, found to be offensive, is the way in which the New Testament says, Father God punishes the Son for my sin. I mean, even though it might be nice to be off the hook, it just seems sort of a travesty of justice that another person should or even could bear my guilt. Can someone else really pay for my sin the way I might give you 100 bucks to pay for your phone bill? I mean, is, is guilt that easily transferable? It's almost frightening to read the depths of anger and mockery with which some theological writers approach this issue. I'm going to take the time just to do one striking example. To those who deny the justice of Christ being punished on the cross for my sins. Consider these words by Brad Jersak and Michael Harden in their book, Stricken by God? Harden writes of receiving, listen, an evangelical mass mailing just days after a recent tragedy in which a number of Amish school children were savagely murdered. Okay? The flyer that he received, the flyer invited people to come to church where they would hear that on the cross, Jesus... God punished Jesus for our sins. Harden writes, Jesus took the place of sinners, the church mailing read. Harden sees a direct parallel between the God of this gospel and the angry gunman in the Amish schoolhouse. Reportedly, the gunman acted out of anger for the death of his own daughter some years earlier. And police overheard him telling his victims, I'm going to make you pay for my daughter. Now, sit up straight and give your head a shake so you're awake to what Harden's going to say next. The atonement sought by the shooter for his daughter's death is no different than that sought by God in that evangelical mail-out. For both... Blood satisfies, and in both, innocent blood, truly innocent blood, was shed. Like, wow. This is a more graphic way of expressing the same distaste for the substitutionary atonement that's expressed by Bishop John Shelby Spong, who wrote, I would choose to loathe rather than to worship a deity who required the sacrifice of his innocent son. Or consider these words, evangelical pastor and author Greg Boyd, in his book, The Nature of the Atonement, says, quote, How is the view that God requires a kill to have his rage placated, essentially different from the pagan or magical understanding of divine appeasement found in primordial religions. Now, I'm going to deal, I'm going to take whole sermons, okay, dealing with those objections. With their tragically neglected doctrine of the Trinity, by the way, which teaches, where's God? God was in Christ. Reconciling the, it, God is on that cross. If you treat them like they're like 
two separate human beings, all sorts of damage is done. But these people all know better than that. But their argument won't work if you include the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. For, you still with me? For it will take considerably more determination and courage for the church to proclaim the gospel today than a single generation ago. There's no denying that the ground is shifting around the foot of the cross. I mean, to some degree, it's always been that way. It was that way in the New Testament itself. The Jews, Paul says, they look at the cross who, and they want to keep the law of God and they, it's, it makes no sense. The Greeks, the Gentiles, the rest of the population, they look at the cross, this idea of someone dying for my sin, they think it's foolishness. See, we're making a full circle. But this is different. The message of the cross is becoming extremely offensive to sections in the evangelical church. And it's gaining momentum, especially in millennials and Gen Xers. They have their cluster of authors and bloggers, and they all take exactly the same course. I want to close by examining why this is so. Why this is so. A. First, while there are additional meanings to the atonement in the New Testament, Peter says Jesus suffered as an example of how to face persecution. Paul says Jesus died to establish a victory over the kingdom of Satan. We'll look at both those in the future. But while there are additional meanings to the atonement in the New Testament, the substitutionary, divine, wrath-bearing death of God the Son for our sins, it's the unique claim of the Christian faith that gives meaning to the other theories of the atonement as they're shared. It's the essence of gospel uniqueness. And that means, it means that we will appear unbending in the eyes of much of the religious world precisely at that one point. There are just so many who are pounced to call your view intolerant. But my second reason, my second reason is the key that I want to look at. Here's why it's gaining traction. There has never been a generation in the Church of Christ who has become more culturally trained, that's important, culturally trained to measure the content of its own message by the reaction of those who hear it. I need to explain that a bit. This is another in the long list of tragic results of redefining, psychologizing the gospel. As our message gets increasingly therapeutic in the religious bestsellers and sometimes even the songs that we sing, we will, we will tend to measure how loving the message is by the reaction of those who hear it. Did everybody understand that? We will tend to measure how truthful our message is by the reaction of those who hear it. If someone doesn't like what I say, well, 
There's a whole crowd that'll say, then I must be unloving to say it. Makes sense. If someone is offended by what I say, then what I'm saying must be offensive. That's how we measure. Everything's measured by the hearer, not the speaker, the hearer. Of course, it isn't true at all. I've said it before, if Jesus walked this earth today, make no mistake, if Jesus physically walked this earth today and said exactly everything that he said in the New Testament, he would be banned from Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Nobody would allow him that kind of hate speech. He was constantly offending people by what he said, but, but it still has the feel of something logical to people. The love in my heart isn't measured by the way you react to what I say. The love in my heart is only truly measured by the urgency of what I say and the motive in my heart when I say it. Just because someone doesn't react well to what I proclaim doesn't mean I was unloving in my proclamation. Am I making it clear? There's just no end of drift from biblical truth if this is forgotten. Once we measure the love content of the truth by the reaction of the hearer, we will not only change our presentation of the message, but the content of the message if people don't like what we say. Here's a great quote from John Piper. The offended hearer takes on a power that once belonged only to the Bible. The offended hearer takes on a power that once belonged only to the Bible. And so I finish with my opening thought. There's a whole bunch to unpack still. But never did a more loving person breathe than our blessed Lord and Savior. And he talked the most about the wrath of Father God against my sin. And whenever we lovingly tell this stubborn world that without Christ's wrath-bearing, sin-canceling, kingdom-bringing, peace-with-God-accomplishing death on the cross, then it's going to remain lost in its proud unbelief. We do it no disservice by telling it the truth. The church is most loving when she is most faithful to the truth in her proclamation of it. It's going to get harder, church. If no one's told you that before, it's going to get way harder following Jesus. We'll have to be certain of biblical content, not cowardly. More will be personally at stake, not less. But let's understand and proclaim the love-filled truth, the beautiful love-filled truth of our Savior's death on the cross. And everybody said, we are so grateful. This gospel has survived, this message, the same one, has survived empires coming and going, the world changing in so many ways. 
Every attempt on the planet has been made to stomp out the truth of why Jesus came, God in Christ, dying on the cross for my sin. And whatever happens in a thousand years, should you tarry, the gospel is not going to die in our hands. We will teach it and proclaim it and understand it and study it worship you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.